announcements from this morning. I'll just go over a couple of announcements. We went old school today. Like, whoa, paper bulletins. It's been a while. <laughs> but uh, it actually has some advantage. On the back, you can take this home with you, and it's a little bit more accessible. But there's a few announcements, some events coming up. Um, highlight, there's an opportunity uh, sort of in the center of the announcements page there. Uh, opportunity for just an outreach into a neighboring community. Elmira is, I don't know, what, 20 miles from Ithaca here? Uh, is that right, Mike? Something like that. Mike and Bev live in that direction. So, um, yeah, August 6th and 7th. It's a really cool opportunity just to connect with area churches to do some cleanup work in a part of Elmira, New York, that needs some cleanup work. So encourage you to get involved in that. August 7th, the next one is a marriage tune-up. So um, yeah, don't conflict yourself with the sign-up for the outreach in Elmira and miss the marriage tune-up if you want to do that. And then looking ahead, September 11th, we'll have a, a think together what the Bible says about gender. Uh, obviously, that's a um, pretty hot-button social issue these days. We're going to look at it more from the perspective of men and women from a biblical perspective, roles of men and women in marriage, in the church. So that, that's how we're going to approach that. That's actually part two, the first time we looked more at the uh, gender dysphoria, some of the issues there. The purpose of Think Together is to take confusing challenging issues and run them through the lens of the scripture, right? And try to find scriptures and apply scriptures to our thinking so that we are better equipped to witness to friends and people that uh, need the gospel. All right, so that's what that is all about. So turn to me, with me, uh, don't turn to me, turn with me to Colossians 2. We'll pick it up at verse 11. And I'd like to just read through the end of the chapter, verses 11 to 23. And then by God's grace, we'll talk about what's going on here. It says, In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So, let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he says he has seen, 
vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from God. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why as though living in the world do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concerns, concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Father, you are the source of life and joy and peace and true love that changes our lives, Lord, permanently and brings us into a personal relationship with you through your Son, Jesus. So, Lord, wherever we are today, and I'm saying that broadly, Lord, you know all things. You, Jesus, revealed when you lived on this earth that you said not a sparrow falls to the ground that the Father is not aware of. He knows every hair of your head. He knows our end from our beginning. And so we commit our lives to you, Lord. I pray that your word, your truth, your glorious gospel would express to us, affirm to us the freedom that we have. And we would rest in what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so it's the 4th of July, and um, probably couldn't have a better portion of Scripture than to talk about the freedom that Jesus has given us. Um, Fourth of July, just a quick reminder, 1776, Continental, Continental Congress declared that the 13 American colonies, <clears throat> excuse me, 13 American colonies were no longer subject to King George III. They were free and independent. John Adams, a signer of the Declaration of Independence, said, this day will be the most memorable epoch in the history of America. I am apt to believe that it will be celebrated by succeeding generations as the great anniversary festival. It ought to be commemorated as the day of deliverance by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. John Adams. Right? So he had the uh, wherewithal to perceive that what they had declared on this day, their independence from England, was going to be something remembered as it has been even to this day. So, as we know, not everyone living in this newly independent nation was free. Thomas Jefferson, probably the main architect of the language of the Declaration of Independence, was a prominent Virginia slave owner owning 600 enslaved Africans on his Monticello plantation. Referring to this contradiction, English abolitionist Thomas Day wrote, if there be an object truly ridiculous in nature, it is an American patriot signing resolutions of independency with the one hand and with the other brandishing a whip over his affrighted slaves. So that's just a, an introduction to the text 
in the context in which Paul is writing. Paul is writing truth to Christians who have experienced an independence from slavery to their sin. And yet, they weren't actually experiencing that freedom as they ought to be. They were being influenced by outside forces there in Colossae, which were, they were listening to. And it was causing them to not live as freely as they ought to live. They were questioning the sufficiency and the supremacy of Jesus, what he had accomplished in his death and resurrection. And so Paul hears about this, and he writes these words that we're reading here this morning. He preaches the gospel to believers. That's really what Paul does in these verses. I think what we'll do is we'll concentrate a bunch of our time this morning in verses 11 through 19. And just if you want to outline or get a little bit of a structure to it, what I see in verses 11 through 15 is Paul affirming our independence. And then verses 16 to 19, he declares our dependence on Jesus. So there's liberty and there's dependence, all right? So Paul is preaching the gospel to believers. It's really, really good to do, to preach the gospel to yourself. Why? Because sin in this world and the devil will beat us up numerous times in any given day. And you come into church or you come into a place of fellowship with other believers or maybe just in the privacy of your own devotion or in your own head and heart and there's this nagging sense of I'm not good enough. I have failed. And you hear these voices going off in your head going, you're not good enough. You're a jerk. You're a failure. I'm not sure what Jesus has accomplished is going to cover and take care of all the things that you just thought about, that you wish you could act out on, or maybe the things that you have acted out on. And so it's really good to preach the gospel to ourselves, to encourage us, to remind ourselves of what Jesus has done. <clears throat> so again, Verses 11 through 15, I see Paul declaring our freedom, and then 16 to 19, he defends our freedom. What's the message of Colossae? Any of you who have been here for, you know it, you just don't want to speak up. It's the glory of Christ. I'm going to repeat that every time we meet until we finish this book, okay? Paul's theme in writing this book is he's talking about the glory of Jesus Christ, who is God, took on a human nature, and lived on this planet for 33 years. At the end of his life, he gave his life sacrificially, willingly, for the sin of the world, yours and mine. And because he's eternal God, his offering was satisfactory for all time. And that's why Paul could write these words to this church that was formed by hearing the gospel, this truth of Jesus dying for them, setting them free from control of the lusts of the flesh 
and bringing them into a personal relationship. That's why Paul can write these words to a church that existed like some 20 years, 30 years after Jesus died. Because what he accomplished has efficacy, big word, for all time, for all people, anybody who will come to faith in him. So Paul preaches the gospel to the church. And I just want to say something that I became aware of as I read this, in that I love the tenor of Paul's words. He's not angry. He's not rebuking. He's not speaking harshly with a strong admonition. What's wrong with you, Christian? Why why are you taking heed to these influencers, these social influencers, Judaizers or philosophers or these astrologers or these people that are put together this toxic mix of some sort of special spiritual mysticism. That's what was going on. And they were taking heed to that because the people who were promoting that were very powerful, influential, wealthy, educated people that they were having struggles in arguing against They seem to be making some logical arguments, and not only that, but their lives of these people, as we read together, showed some sense of humility and and self-denial and worship, and they seemed to have a life that was put together. And so there there were some issues, and I love the tenor of Paul's words. He's not angry. And I I think he's representing our Savior Jesus to us in these letters, in these words. Paul could be angry. Jesus could be angry. He went in and turned the tables of the money changers over. They started doing commercialism in the church. And Jesus walked in and he says, this is ridiculous. This is a house of prayer. You turn it into a den of thieves. And so there was sort of a righteous anger, very much a righteous anger in the Lord. And Paul's not doing that here. He understands the hunger of the human soul for purpose and meaning in life. He knows that man, more than anything, desires love and needs hope. And because of that, they will pursue fulfillment, perhaps in a multitude of ways. Oftentimes, in the spiritual realm. That's why there are so many spiritual faiths, Hinduism or Buddhism from the East, the yogic traditions, as I would call them, or the Abrahamic traditions, Judaism, Muslim, Islam, or the cultic, Mormonism, astrology, the zodiac, right? What's your sign? You read the paper. What's this mean? Tells me who I am. What is that? It's people looking for meaning. And Paul knows that. So wherever you are this morning, I know that you're on a spiritual journey. And Paul is writing a letter, and he's pointing us to Jesus. And he says in verse 11, in him. We've made this point before, but he, this is the way Paul is writing here. He's just constantly third person. And he's saying, look at him. I know where you're coming from, and I know what you have believed, or maybe what you're considering. Maybe you're considering Christianity, and Paul is preaching to us this morning what happens when a person becomes a Christian.
The way I think about this, because I'm a guy who likes to fix things, and some of you can appreciate this, but I see it as sort of Paul goes to his automobile and he pops the hood and he looks under the hood. And he's like, what's going on behind the scenes, invisibly? This is what he reveals when a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ. He's revealing what happens invisibly, but it's real. It's something that you might feel. In fact, you probably will. But whether you feel or not, it is actual, it is real. You come into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, who's alive today, crucified, buried, risen, ascended, coming again. And so Paul, writing to this church, he preaches the gospel, and he declares their freedom. So let's look at it with me, if you would, please. Uh, verse 11, in him <laughs> you were also, okay, so uh, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, awkward subject, <laughs> okay, circumcision is, as you know, is just a simply a removal of a little bit of flesh from the male organ, Right? Paul is bringing that up because there is actually, I've read, there was actually a sizable Jewish population in Colossae, and for various reasons. We don't need to get into it. But some estimate, and they have a way to figure that out, that there may have been as many as 50,000 Jews in this region where Colossae was located, along with Laodicea and Hierapolis. This little valley, there was these three cities that were close and proximity. But he's, he brings up circumcision because whether you know or not, but that was a very significant sign or seal that you were a Jew, right? So God gave that as a sign to Abraham, the first Jewish Hebrew man, right? And it's a sign of him being in relationship with God. So circumcision comes up in Paul's conversation because there was some Jewish influence. Perhaps they were saying, well, you're not really a Christian, or you can't really be in relationship with God unless you become circumcised. The church, by and large, was Gentile. It wasn't a necessity for them, unless they chose for other health reasons. So that's what he's talking about here. That's why it comes up in the conversation. Circumcision was identification of Jewishness, and it was an obligation, therefore, to keep the law and the commandments. Paul is not talking about a physical circumcision, obviously, because he says that you were circumcised without hands. Okay? He's lifting the hood, and he's talking about what goes on inside of a human when they hear the gospel and they believe in Jesus. And so he's using these words, this word circumcision, three or four times in these first verse 11 because of the Jewish influence. But he says, ah, but it goes much deeper. It's not a physical, it's a spiritual thing. Well, what gets a cut away then? If it's not physical, then what gets cut away and cast off if it's not physical? And he tells us 
In this verse, in him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh, the circumcision of Christ. What it was is uh, it was your sinful desires, okay? It was your sinful desires. It is the power of sin working in your life, the body of the flesh. I like to think of it this way. It's a fire-breathing dragon, <laughs> okay? I know that's a weird analogy. It's a monster of iniquity, as one man famously said in a sermon. That's what's inside of me. That's what's inside of me. I am a, an idolatry, an idolatrous manufacturer. I am a research and developer inside of me. I can develop. I don't need outside influence. It is just my sinful nature to love stuff or myself. Rebellious, idolatrous, envious, covetous, lying, thieving, hating, disrespecting, fornicating, unethical, immoral heart. Paul's talking about the circumcision of the human heart, which has all these, this body of flesh, these, these evil desires. And mostly it's rebellion and idolatry. I don't need God. And he's saying, when you hear the gospel, in him you also, you see, he's taking him back to ground zero. This is what happened. You're being distracted and influenced by others. Let me tell you, you're considering circumcision totally unnecessary. Can you imagine the 13 colonies after declaring their freedom and then putting themselves back subjection to King George? It's like, what are you doing that for? For all that you fought for and worked hard for and you've crafted this beautiful document and you declared your freedom and it's true and you're enjoying that. And now then, because, but then your behavior, you start to think, well, maybe we're better off back with George. So Paul's saying, in him you were also circumcised with the circumcision. Romans chapter 2 might help us a little bit further. Paul says true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. It is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, which is why Paul would say in Philippians 3, verse 3, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And put no confidence in the flesh. I'm going to make myself okay by obeying the law. Good luck, bro. I hope you can get through a few hours without lying or lusting or hating or disrespecting <laughs> or coveting. All right? It's a glorious truth, brothers and sisters. And, and, and because it's a spiritual truth, it expands out beyond just the male species, <laughs> circumcision, and, it, and it's effective for men and women. Paul would say in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor there is there male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. You believe the gospel. And what happens at that moment of faith, and, and it happens so delicately and beautifully that he actually cuts away the power of sin that has been controlling your life. For me personally, I had no concept of the gospel. Zero. Zero. None. 
an irreligious man. I had attended a denomination, but was bored out of my mind growing up at, at the services that took place there. And I'm sure the gospel was preached, but I just couldn't hear it. Until I came to the end of myself, where my, my sinful behavior just caught up with me, and it was about to ruin my life and my family. And there was no escape. And I can tell you, at that moment, this weight of guilt came on my head and my back, and it was like so great. I didn't know how to find, how to get out of that thing. And then my dear cousin Neil came, and he began to share the gospel. Again, didn't make sense. I'm not hearing it. All I knew is I was really much, I was in trouble. And that I was deserving of really bad stuff for all the things that I had done. It wasn't until Jesus sovereignly entered into my life, sovereignly, just came by his grace and mercy and he set me free. He delivered the poor guy from the fire-breathing dragon. And he just said, you're free, bro. And I knew it because the guilt and the condemnation was gone instantly. But now I read Colossians and I realize not only did that happen, but he took that thing that caused so much trouble, this wicked, selfish heart, and he cut it away and put it off. Paul says the putting off of the flesh. He uses very expressive words there. Completely removed. I had this morning the weird thought of maybe I should just come in with a jacket. I have an old smelly jacket that I don't ever wash. And just, I, I thought maybe I'll put that on and then just to demonstrate putting off, I'll just take it and I'll just throw it to the side. It's like, it's not just, it's like gone and put away from you. That's what he's done. Some of the most beautiful words in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 36, he says, I'm going to take your heart of stone and I'm going to give you a new heart, a heart of flesh, one that is sensitive and alive to me. This is a reality. This is a spiritual reality that the living God, through his living Son, by the power of his Holy Spirit, makes known to a person when they just simply will come to him by faith. It's an invisible but very true it's the gospel. And Paul says that gospel which happened invisibly and secretly and silently inside of you, this cutting away of that old man, that old nature, it's then expressed openly through baptism. Verse 12. Buried with him in baptism, in which also you were raised with him, through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Did you notice? It's through faith. Paul stresses that. Again, Jewish people saying to the Christian people, if you really want to be right with God, you need to be circumcised. Paul's saying, that's crazy, <laughs> right? Circumcision of the heart has already taken place, right? And then that is expressed in verse 12, buried with him in baptism. So, you know, we baptized uh, Mia and Lucy uh, back in May. Beautiful day, right? Heard their testimony, stepped in, we had a little pool here, put them in the water. What they were doing was an external demonstration of the internal reality, right? It's like, I, they trusted by faith the gospel. Jesus died for me. And after he died, he was buried. I'm going under the water. I'm identifying with him in his death 
And then he rose again. God put new life back into Jesus' dead body. But his death, we're united with him in his death. We're united with him in his resurrection. This is one of the most glorious truths, brothers and sisters. You see what happens in, in, in baptism? What happens in, in faith that Paul's bringing out here? What I like to say, there is a change of administration. It's no longer King Scott. It's now King Jesus. The power and the influence that brought me to the end of myself, that by his grace and his love and mercy, drawing me to the cross, showing me I am the meaning of life. I am the love and the joy and the peace that you're looking for. And so I, I trust why he circumcised, he puts off that old man that's killing me, and now I'm raised with him, and now that very same life of Jesus is flowing into my life, and he's taken over. And you're looking at some jerk standing up here talking, but I'm telling you, Jesus is in here. He's present in me by his Holy Spirit. Sealed me by his Spirit. And so what happens? That means as I walk out into the street and I go about my life, and as you go about your life, now there's a new power. Now the temptations come, and it's like, I don't want to do that anymore. And now there's conviction. Gee, what are you thinking like that about that brother for? That's crazy. Jesus died for them. It's like, oh, I'm so sorry, Lord. See, now his grace is governing my life. True freedom. True freedom. The monster is slain. The dragon is dead. You're set free. And it happens from the inside out. And it's, and it's declared, Paul's saying, remember your baptism? He takes him back and he says, remember, you're buried with him in baptism in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God. We are raised with Jesus. There is a change of administration, brothers and sisters. No longer King George. Now it's Joe Biden, actually. <laughs> That's okay. Pray for him who raised him from the dead. Paul goes on, verse 13. He's just declaring their freedom. That's what he's doing here. I wonder what kind of an effect that had on that church. Like they show up to church and they're a little bit beat down. It's like, man, I gotta, I'm really considering this. You know, I should start observing certain days. Days and diet. <laughs> that's what he talked about. There's only certain foods I should eat. And there's certain festivals. And that's what he taught in the new moons and Sabbaths and all these things. And Paul, oh, what a declaration of freedom he gives them. Verse 13, he goes on and he sort of repeats himself. And you being dead in your trespasses, notice that's plural. What's a trespass? Anybody ever trespassed before? Andrew's over here going, hmm. <laughs> yeah, I hunt. <laughs> Edith, right? What's a trespass? It means don't go there. But you cross the line. You do what you're not supposed to do. Right? Paul calls that trespasses. God says, don't lie. Do you lie? Everybody in this room's a liar. Right? You stole stuff? Oh, yeah. Yep. And on and on it goes. Dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Now, I don't know. I, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read a lot of different references. <laughs> Pastor Scott, keep it simple. 
right? But he's talking about spiritual death. Go with me just for a moment. Don't turn in your Bible, but you know the story, Adam and Eve, right? God said to Adam, the day you eat that thing is the day you will die. Well, you know the story. They ate. They ate. They trespassed. Don't. And they're like, let's do. <laughs> and so they ate. They died. Did they physically die? Nope. They spiritually died. I'll just show you. Uh, Chuck Smith demonstrated what is Adam's life was like prior to his trespass, to his disobedience and sin against his creator. He was a spirit, soul, and body, a three-part being. And he always go like this, right? Spirit is on top, soul, and body. And so when Adam and Eve were alive, prior to their sin, they were intimately in relationship with God. Spirit, worshiping in spirit and in truth. And they had their will and their emotions. And then bottom of the line was body. That's why they could stand, and it tells us in Genesis, that they were naked and not ashamed. When they sinned, it turned upside down. And now it's self-consciousness. The first thing they did is made fig leaves cover up. Don't look at me. And now their will is corrupted and spirit is dead. It's now buried down here. When you trust the gospel, Jesus gives you a new heart, turns it right back around. And you're living in this body, and there's a struggle with your body, but you're winning it because he's now living in you. The King Jesus is in here. And with him comes all the love and the hope and the assurance and the peace. Oh my God, peace is such a precious commodity today. So precious. He brings rest to your soul. Jesus said it. Come unto me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me, and you'll find rest for your soul, for I am meek and lowly. So Paul, that's what he's saying here in verse 13. He's going back again. He's saying, you being dead in your trespasses, that is, prior to becoming a Christian, you were observing certain spiritual practices. They had no relationship. It was just religion. It's what it was. It was always required of you to be good enough, to do enough, so that in the afterlife, you have a chance, the scales, right? Hopefully the good outweighs the bad. Or there's a reincarnation to something better than a rat, <laughs> which is all I was when I was alive. Joke, right? You being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of flesh, he's made alive together with him. How? Having forgiven you all trespasses. Forgiven freely. Nothing's asked of you except just believe and you will be forgiven of everything that has offended me. Verse 14, having wiped out, now notice at the end of verse 13, he starts to pile on a few things here, using the word having. 
The end of verse 13. Having forgiven, verse 14, having wiped out, the end of verse 14, having nailed it to the cross, 15, having disarmed. It's like, he's just like, look what Jesus has done. Look at the glory of Christ to rescue fallen man, to bring them into relationship out of religion or deadness and personally alive to Christ and alive in Christ. Look what he's done. Having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. There's a lot of words there. And that's what my New King James says. Your Bible might say something about a certificate of debt. And that is a good translation. All right? Because the Bible refers to our sin as a debt. Right? I do something wrong. I incur in a debt. And Paul uses trespasses. I keep accruing more and more debt, as I said to you from my personal testimony. It started to build up and it got so heavy I couldn't endure it any longer. I knew I was living a lie. I knew I was being unfaithful in numerous ways and lying to my family. And the debt just started piling up until a point where it just crushed me. And then Jesus wiped it all away. (laughs) Having forgiven, having wiped out the debt. There's a beautiful example of debt that Jesus himself used a little parable. You see, he was invited to the home of a guy named Simon, not Peter, but another guy who was a Pharisee. And he's eating there in this guy, this Pharisee's home. Now, this Pharisee didn't like Jesus, but I guess he figured, let's bring my enemy close, then I can get to know him better. I don't know. So he invites Jesus to the meal. And while Jesus is eating, a woman comes in. Now, this woman was notorious for her behavior in the town. It says she was an immoral woman. And she comes in while Jesus is eating. And in that culture, in the ancient Jewish culture, in the, you know, they would recline at a table with their feet stretched out behind them. And apparently it was kind of a public thing because she had access to the room where Jesus was eating. She comes in and she does a couple of things. She does something that a woman would never do in public. She let her hair down. And that was a sign of complete humility. And then she just started weeping over his feet. Well, Simon, the host who invited Jesus, he thinks to himself, if he really knew who she was, if he was really a prophet, he wouldn't let her touch him. Jesus, who knows what you're thinking, he knew what Simon was thinking. He said, uh, Simon, I have something to say to you. Simon, I suppose he smiled, right? He's like, oh, say on, teacher. Jesus said, a certain moneylender had creditors, or two debtors, excuse me. One owed 500, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, from whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. And then he looked at the woman and he said, your faith has saved you. Not so subtle message. Simon, I know she's a sinner. And she's accrued a lot of debt. 
She's believed in me, and I have forgiven her. You are a self-righteous Jewish Pharisee, and you don't love me because you think your debt, you don't even think you have a debt. So take a lesson, Simon, from somebody who's experienced forgiveness. <laughs> what a beautiful picture. One of my favorite scenes in the life of Jesus. Luke chapter 7, verse 39, by the way, if you want to read it for yourself. He says he's wiped out the handwriting of... He's, he's removed. <laughs> he, you were bankrupt. He's done away with it. Done away with it. Go to your bank account. No more red ink. It's gone. You got debts? You got student debt? Of course. Some, right? <laughs> Can you imagine? It's like, gone. Where'd it go? I forgave it. Just forgave it. Not to be found. I don't know, I'm trying to make the impression of gone, gone. It's like, it's, just not, it's gone. <laughs> it's not being held over your head any longer. That's why we need to hear the gospel, church. It's not being held against us. The Bible says that God forgives and forgets. Well, God can't forget anything. The point is, God doesn't forget what we've done, but he does insist that he doesn't take that and hold it against you anymore. I love some of the Psalms. It's like he takes your sin and he puts it as far as the east is from the west. They're never going to be seen. East will never see west. He puts it behind his back. There's a blind spot that we all have where we can't, without a mirror, even with a mirror, you, can, you can't see it. It's like I put it behind me. In Christ, it's been taken the debt that we've occurred, all the trespasses that have accrued in our lives. In verse 14, again, at the second part of that verse, he says, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Verse 15, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Principalities and powers is a reference to angels. Yes, friends, there are angels. There's millions of angels. They're invisible, but there's millions upon millions, untold, uncountable number of angels, good and bad. Paul totally acknowledges that. And as we read together, there were people in Colossae who felt like they had some sort of interaction with spiritual beings, angels, and they were worshiping them. And they were like, if you were initiated into our exclusive club, you too would have understanding of some of the higher spiritual things. Paul's like, yeah, look, Jesus disarmed them. Now, there's a lot going on here. And... How you got, if you see an angel, how are you going to know if it's a good one or a bad one? That's a good question. You know, there's a, a Roman soldier, Acts chapter 10, dude named Cornelius. He was a high-ranking Roman soldier. He saw an angel. Now, if you see an angel, and they're real, sometimes they manifest the good and the bad, how are you going to know if it's a good or a bad? Let me tell you a couple of key things. The good angels will never accept or allow worship. Yes, whoever said that. They do not accept it or allow it. Case in point, Revelation 19, verse 10, the Apostle John is overwhelmed with the revelation that's coming to him 
being shown to him by an angel, and it says, I fell down at his feet to worship him. He said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Angels don't accept worship. Bad angels want your worship. Remember Jesus tempted by the devil himself in the wilderness? devil took him up to a high mountain, showed him all the kingdom of the world. He said, fall down, worship me, I'll give them to you. Jesus said, get out of here. That's not what he said. He said, you sh- it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Good angels will lead you to Jesus in truth. Bad angels will seek to lead you away from Jesus. All right, well, that was a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I've just, because Paul brings up principalities and powers, he says he disarmed them. He disarmed them. That is a glorious truth. That is a glorious truth. Let me give you a few of the adjectival names, am I saying that right, that are applied to the Satan himself in the New Testament? Here's one, liar. How about tempter, destroyer, thief, accuser, of the brethren. Jesus disarmed them. How is that? Because he took all of that junk inside of me, that sinful nature, put it away. He took away the teeth right out of all their arguments. And now he's made me a man of God or a woman of God. If God can't hold it against me, Satan's lost his footing. Although he'll try. That's why we claim the blood of Jesus. Oh, I hear you breathing down my neck. Jesus over this accusation. It's true. I did think that. I did say that. I did watch that. But I've confessed it. Get out of here. He disarmed principalities and powers. Should I read this? This is a little quote from F.F. Bruce about this verse 15, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. I'm going to read this to you. I I was totally loved this. He says, not only has Jesus blotted out the record of our indebtedness, but he has subjugated those powers whose possession of that damning indictment was a means of controlling them. You hear me? Right? So the devil is keeping track of all the stuff, of all of the indebtedness. And he's using that against you. The very instrument of disgrace and death by which the hostile forces thought they had him in their grasp and conquered him forever... That is, now he's taking us to the cross. Bruce is here. And he's telling us what's happening at the cross. Just like Paul is. At the cross, he stripped them of their power. The very instrument, the certificate of debt, of disgrace and death by which the hostile forces thought they had him in their grasp and had conquered him forever, was turned by him into the instrument of their defeat and disablement. Hear this out. As Jesus was suspended there, 
bound hand and foot to the wood in apparent weakness. They imagined they had him at their mercy and flung themselves on him with hostile intent. But far from suffering their attack without resistance, he grappled with them and mastered them, stripping them of the armor in which they trusted and held them aloft in his outstretched hands, displaying to the universe their helplessness in his own unvanquished strength. That is beautiful. That is beautiful. Paul has declared our freedom. And now he basically says in the next few verses, and for the sake of time I'll move quicker, but he says, defend it. Let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival. Don't let people put a trip on you. You got to do it this way. No, I don't. We've had this conversation among ourselves here in leadership the last little bit. And you know, it's interesting. Something that has been said is like, we are freer. We are way more free than we realize here in our Christian lives as men and women. And look, I get it. We all come from different backgrounds, different environments. There's things that we have, baggage that come into Christianity with us. Right? That is some old habits or some old patterns of thought. Maybe you've been uh, alcoholic or you've had gross gambling issues or eating disorders or gender dysphoria. There's all kinds of things. Like It makes sense, right? There absolutely makes sense. All things are possible, but not everything is good for me. Right? I'm not necessarily going to go hang out in a bar if I really struggle with alcoholism. That's stupid. Right? Well, I have the freedom. Yeah, but that's not even makes sense. He says, don't let anybody judge you. He's like, defend your freedom. You need to eat a certain way. You need to live, dress a certain way. We first planted this church here in Ithaca. There was some family that came from another church that was really legalistic. And I didn't know it until I got to know them a little bit better. And I remember... The wife telling me at one point, she goes, yeah, if you showed up to church with a red dress, sorry, Natalie, <laughs> or it's orange. <laughs> yeah. She's <laughs> like, that was a bad thing. You, could, you had to wear a dress, but it couldn't be red because red indicated, I don't know what it indicated. Like, wow. Yeah. She's like, yeah. And you had to have certain size heel and all this stuff. People judging you can't do that. Verse 17, all these dietary and these festivals and new moons which are a shadow of things to come but the substances of Christ. The shadow and the substance. All right, Paul's basically saying all that was Old Testament that was represented by a circumcision. That's gone. It's fulfilled in Christ. All right, let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility, worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshy mind and not holding fast. There it is. Hold fast, brothers and sisters. Defend your freedom. Hold fast. It's literally the word there is the same word that described Mary Magdalene resurrection morning at the empty tomb. Jesus says, Mary. She turned around and, she, and the text tells us that she flung herself at his knees and just grasped him. I am not letting you go. He's like, God, let me go. 
you got to let me go. Because I need to go to heaven so I can send the Holy Spirit. And people can be freed from their sin. It's that idea. You hold fast. How do you hold fast? I mean, in real time, in reality, how do you do that? As you walk in this world. Jesus would say, abide in the vine. (laughs) How do you do that? Faith, trust, obedience. Right? You need to nourish your faith by reading and studying and memorizing and meditating on the truth of the Word of God because that informs us of what is right, of what is true. It reminds us of how glorious and holy God is and beautiful and worthy of being followed and worshipped. That's how you hold fast. It's not rocket science, friends. It's just practical daily Christianity. So maybe you've lost your grip this morning. I don't know where you're at. But Andrew, Olivia, if you would come up, we'll sing a last song and worship and we'll take communion together. (laughs) Hold fast. Maybe you've lost your grip. I don't know. Jesus seems irrelevant or not impressive or indifferent, distant. (laughs) I can tell you, based on what Paul has written, that's an absolute lie. I don't know where it came from. I know that Satan is a liar. I know that I can be a liar. So maybe it's just my pride saying, well, you're not good enough. I was never good enough. You'll never be good enough. Paul's like, look at him. He's the good one. Why would he do such a thing? Why would Jesus subject himself to these demonic forces and take upon himself our problems? And, our, and assume our debt. Why would he do that? There's only one answer. Love. Love. Greater love has no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. You're my friends. I'm going to lay down my life for you. Similar words, John 10, Jesus family famously referred to himself as the good shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. And a good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. No man takes my life from me. They didn't murder me. I offered my life as a sacrifice for the sin of other people. I assumed their debt. And in that place, with our sin and debt on Jesus, God judged him. He judged you in Him. And when you believe that, He slays the dragon. (laughs) You're set free. His life now comes in and you live a new life. You're born again. So I will pray we'll look at a couple of scriptures related to communion. We did away with the peel and stick thing. Or not peel and stick, but the whatever. We couldn't. Yeah, so we got the real deal here today. Um, So um, I'll pray. We'll begin to worship. Uh, Invite you forward as we start to worship. Uh, Just to remember the body and the blood of Jesus. (laughs) Right? Right?
Jesus sat at the table with his friends at the Passover meal, and he gave it all new meaning. <laughs> he goes, no, 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 this is no longer a Passover meal. That was just a shadow. That was just a foreshadowing of the real deal. This, this bread, it's my body, which is given for you. This blood, this wine that we're drinking, it's no longer the, the emblem of the blood of a lamb and Passover in Egypt. It's now my blood, which is shed for you. Thank you, Lord, for the freedom. Thank you so much, Lord, that we have life and we have it more abundantly. So be glorified in the hearts of your people today. We pray in your name. Amen.